Welcome to Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to spreading more empathy throughout the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Grant Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Zoe Weil, who is the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education which educates people to create a world where humans and animals and nature can thrive. The Institute also offers the only graduate program in humane education, linking human rights, animal protection and environmental preservation. Zoe is the author of seven books, including The World Becomes What We Teach, Educating a Generation of Solutionaries, which I love, and has delivered six TED Talks. So welcome Zoe. Thank you so much, Anita. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Now, my first question will for sure be, how can we create a world in which all living beings can thrive and survive, survive and thrive? But before you even answer that, could we just kind of reach back and hear the backstory to what brought you to that beautiful mission? Sure. Um, I feel like I have to be careful not to launch into my entire life story at this point, but I'll start with saying that um, I stumbled into this work. I had gone to college pre-med. I moved away from that. I ended up getting a master's in English literature and thought I'd be a college professor. Then realized the job market wasn't so great for that. I went to law school, dropped out by Thanksgiving. I went to divinity school to study comparative world religions. And it was during that time in divinity school and I was looking for a summer job that I found these week-long courses that were being taught to middle school students at the University of Pennsylvania, which was my alma mater. So I pitched a bunch of courses. They said yes to all of them. And one of them was on animal issues and one of them was on environmental issues. And it was interesting that the animal issues course was the second most popular of the 60 courses that were offered that summer and nothing to do with me, obviously, they didn't know me, it was the topic. And some people are curious, well, what was more popular? Than yeah. And it was robotics, even back in 1987. This was in 1987. Anyway, so I offered this week long course to 12 and 13 year olds. And I talked about different animal issues each day, we went on field trips. Um, and in the middle of the week, I taught them about product testing on animals. And that's when everything from oven cleaner and soaps and shampoos are dripped into the eyes of conscious rabbits, force fed to them in quantities meant to kill them and smeared onto their abraded skin. And one 12 year old boy went home that night and he made his own homemade leaflets. And when I say he made his own homemade leaflets, this was in 1987. He did not have a personal computer. He hand wrote the leaflets, came back into a class the next day, asked if he could hand them out. I said, sure, thinking he wanted to hand them out to his fellow classmates. No, he wanted to hand them out on a street corner in Philadelphia during lunch because he'd become an activist overnight. He'd learned about something and he wanted to change it. So that experience, that week was the impetus for me to realize the power of education to transform 
not only the thinking and the enthusiasm, but also the actions of young people. And eventually I, I founded a humane education program where I went into schools and gave presentations in classrooms and assembly programs. We were reaching about 10,000 kids a year in the greater Philadelphia area, which is a lot, but still isn't, isn't changing the actual educational system. So in 1996, I co-founded the Institute for Humane Education, and the goal was to transform education, help teachers integrate global ethical issues into their classrooms in ways that empower students, fit into the curriculum, and eventually, which enable young people to become solutionaries to solve the problems we face. And so that's my journey here, and I'll just say <clears throat> one more thing about it. In that very first class I taught was another boy, and I stayed in touch with him over the years through high school, through college, and then he uh, got a job working for the mayor of New York City in AIDS and, and HIV activism work. And I hadn't seen him in many years, even though we stayed in touch. And I was going to be speaking at an event with Jane Goodall in New York City, and I invited him to attend it. And I hadn't seen him in 18 years. And he came, you know, he's an adult, still works for the mayor of New York. And um, I introduced him to some other people as being in the very first humane education class I ever taught. And before I could even finish my sentence, he interjected, that course changed my life. And of course, it, it changed my life too, because that was when I became a humane educator as my career. Wow. Yeah, the power of education, right? And aren't we feeling it now in COVID with everybody doing distance learning, just how powerful it is to be in a classroom, especially with a with somebody who's, you know, creating that spark uh, for students. That's a beautiful story. Now, why do you use the word solutionaries? Because I love it. But tell me, is there a little backstory there? Um, well, our former executive director, and this is, you know, 12, 13 years ago, he, um, he threw out that word. It turns out that it had actually been used uh, a couple decades earlier, but he didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, it hadn't sort of caught on yet, but I just, I was all over that word. I loved that word. Um, and so, you know, we have sort of now made it a not only a popular word, but a word that's being used in educational settings, which I'll get to in a minute. But I'd like to define the word for people because I think when you hear that word, yes, it's a made up word, but I think most people say, well, I get what that is. The solutionary is someone who comes up with solutions. And that's true, but it is not synonymous with problem solver. So an engineer can be a problem solver. You know, you can have a problem and you solve it. But a solutionary is a, it's a little deeper and, and, um, and broader than that. So a solutionary is somebody who can identify unjust, unsustainable, and inhumane systems, and then develop solutions that are systemic solutions. They go to the root of the problem, and they stop that problem from continuing. And they, they solve that problem in a way that does the most good and the least harm to everyone, to people, to other species and to the environment. So you need that whole package to be a solutionary. You need to avoid unintended negative consequences that could harm one group while you're helping another group. So um, 
it, it's not easy to be a solutionary and it's also incredibly exciting to try. Wow, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. It makes me think a little bit of Dr. Uh, Eunice, the Nobel laureate who talks about social fiction. He's like, we, we know about science fiction, right? And people have visions of what could be in the future. He's like, we need more social fiction. Why can't we envision a world without poverty? Why can't we envision a world um, you know, with zero carbon emissions? Anyways, I love it. I love it. I love it. So how can we create this world where living beings can survive and thrive? So I have thought about that question a lot, you know, pretty much my entire career and adult life. And the reason why I focused on education as the means to create that world is because education is the, the root system that underlies all other social systems. And the way that we can create a world where humans and animals and and nature can survive and thrive is to educate young people to be solutionaries. It's, it's really that simple. And, you know, that could sound a little pie in the sky, but, you know, the, the name of my um, most recent book, The World Becomes What We Teach, it's really true. If we, I mean, even Hitler knew that, horrifyingly enough, you know, so much of the Nazi movement was aided and abetted by hit the Hitler youth who would turn against their parents because they were being brainwashed through education. And, you know, our government in the United States knew this when they took Native children away from their parents and put them into boarding schools where they were not allowed, allowed to use their indigenous languages. I mean, that was but probably a bigger contributor to the genocide of indigenous people in the United States than even the direct killing and moving people onto reservations. Education is powerful and it's powerful in both directions, good and toward good and, 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 toward, and toward bad. And so even though it's a simple thing to say that all we need to do is to educate a generation of solutionaries, it's really true. If young people are taught this solutionary process, which is a process, it's a thinking process. And if they are cultivating their empathy and they are motivated to address problems that concern them and they're allowed to do that in school, they're allowed to use numeracy and literacy and the scientific method and all of these thinking capacities for good. If that happens and they collaborate on solving problems there's no reason we can't create a world where everyone survives and thrives. There's just not, you know, we can so, so many things. Why not that? And of course, like I can imagine the implications on a broad social global level, if everyone was taught to be a solutionary, but from your own personal kind of anecdotal perspective, I heard you kind of infer that, Oh, your teaching changed my life or that course changed my life. But what does, you know, studying to be a solutionary do for the actual student? Great question. Doing this kind of work, being a solutionary, is such a corrective to so many other challenges that young people face. I mean, there is a growing epidemic of depression and suicidality among children and teens. 
But when young people actually collaborate and work for change and they find out that they can be effective solutionaries and they can make a difference, that is joy inducing. That, is, that creates community, that creates purpose and meaning. There is nothing that could be better for kids than doing the work of solving these problems. In your curriculum, um, and we can talk a little bit about, I would love to talk a little bit more about your master's program, but um, you know, the idea of, of going out to, to, to create change in the world and look at it from a systems lens and feel the agency that, that people can have through collaborative um, efforts, also sometimes has a high cost, right? You know, some, I, anybody who works in activism for any length of time or is a social entrepreneur or a change maker or a solutionary feels like they're never doing enough. There's never enough time for self-care. Is that embedded in your curriculum as well? Well, the very last step in the solutionary process is celebrate. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely embedded. And, you know, uh, we're trying to make this really rewarding and fun for kids. There's going to be a um, solutionary fair in San Mateo County on May 22nd, 22nd that people can attend. It's going to be virtual. Last year's was canceled because of COVID um, and it was an in-person event. So this year they're, they're doing it virtually. I'm so excited for it. Last year, there were 113 teams of students who had registered to share their solutions. They were charged up. This, you know, I think that there's a difference also between activism in its traditional sense and solutionary thinking and action. And the difference is that with a, when, you're, um, when you're learning the process to become a solutionary, you're identifying a problem that concerns you. You're learning from everybody who's impacted by that problem. You're learning about the solutions that have been tried. You're devising a solution. That's a creative, exciting process. You're learning strategic thinking, systems thinking, critical thinking. It is rich and juicy with um, really enjoyable activity. And then when you devise your solution, you implement it. So all of those things are some of the things that prevent burnout. Now, I will say that the same people who are oriented toward activism and change making may also be oriented toward burnout because they are the people saying, I want to know this stuff, no matter how horrible it is, I want to know, I want to do something about it. And we do have to do self-care, but I would say that the solutionary process is a self-care process. And I, I'll just pause to say something else around this. When I first became an activist, I thought that activism meant that I had to stand out on street corners with leaflets and hand them out, like that boy in my class did on his own. I thought that it meant that I had to just endlessly write letters to CEOs of companies and to my elected officials, and I had to show up for protests and rallies. Now, I like writing letters. I still write letters to my elected officials. I attend rallies um, sometimes. I, I did this year more than I have in many years because of George Floyd's uh, killing, and I was compelled to be there at rallies and protests. However, Rallies and protests and leafleting is not a good form of activism for me. It just isn't. I, I remember the first time I was 
leafleting on a street corner and people would yell at me, get a life, or they'd take my leaflets and then they'd, you know, toss them on the street and they were littering. And I just, it was, it was not a good fit. When I became a, a humane educator and started teaching about these issues, I'd found that sweet spot, that perfect fit for me. Everyone needs to find that for themselves. And part of the solutionary process is asking yourself, what issues do I care about? What am I good at? What do I love to do? And when you can find the place where the answers to those three questions intersect, you're on the path to being able to do your work potentially forever. And I mean, that's been true for me. I have not burned out uh, doing this work for you know almost 35 years now. And I think that it's, it's finding that sweet spot that makes the difference. So what role does empathy play in the work that you do and the mission for your Institute for Humane Education? So as you know, empathy means feeling with others, really um, understanding and um, experiencing others' suffering. And if we don't have empathy, it doesn't mean that we can't be a solutionary. You know, somebody can be a solutionary who's not particularly empathetic. However, empathy is a driving force for wanting to create positive change. If you care about others, generally you want to help. And I tend to use the word compassion a little bit more than I use the word empathy. Um, they're very similar. Um, compassion, it, it, its definition, the, the little bit of a, a difference in the definition is that compassion is usually empathy coupled with a desire to help and create change. And so I feel like it's at the core and it's, it's actually the first step in the solutionary process. If you're a teacher to cultivate empathy and compassion in your students. And so I feel like it's at the core of me and why I do this work. And it's really interesting that I have met people for whom it is not the core driving force and they still do the work. Um, and the only other thing that I, I want to say about empathy and compassion is that um, if you are deeply empathetic, you really do have to do even more self-care. You really do have to limit your exposure to terrible things in the world. I remember when I was first learning about, um, well, back in high school, when I learned about uh, the American slave trade and I immersed myself in those readings and I read Malcolm X and I, I was just devastated. Um, and then when I learned about animal cruelty, same thing happened. I watched videos just sobbing and had nightmares all the time. We have to be careful. The more empathetic we are, the more we need to limit our exposure. And I like to, there's a, a metaphor I like to use um, of, of two fires. And, and these are the fires that um, burn in us in order to help us be solutionaries and activists and change makers. And so picture a campfire in the woods. 
and it's beautiful and warm and people are drawn to it and their faces are glowing in the light of the campfire and more people come because everybody is drawn to this beautiful fire. And now picture the fire getting bigger and hotter and sparks starting to fly and sparks lighting a conflagration in the forest. And now we have a forest fire. Everybody's running, people are choking, they can't breathe. So all of us have a fire inside of us. And it's really important to cultivate the campfire. And the way we cultivate the campfire in my mind is by putting the right amount of fuel on the fire. So if you are deeply passionate about issues of justice and cruelty and sustainability, and you keep exposing yourself to more and more awful things, you're putting more and more fuel in your fire and you may start to burn really hot and you may start to turn off everybody around you because nobody wants to be around you because you are becoming a forest fire. People run from you. You can also imagine the reverse happening. Well, you sort of care about that, but you don't think about it too much. You don't put more fuel, you don't, and the fuel is learning, right? The, you don't actually seek out more information and your fire starts to die down. And now nobody's learning from you or working with you because you just don't have that campfire anymore. So finding that for yourself, how can you be the campfire? It's different from every, for everybody. But empathy is what drives us. And then we have to be very careful about how we nurture our empathy properly to be the right kind of fire. Gosh, and in a world that is where social media is ubiquitous, uh, you know, the fires are raging on one hand and then others are just like totally, I can't look at all. I have to stay in my box of apathy because otherwise I'm going to. So it exacerbates those fires, those two different extremes. Exactly. Um, so why are you focused on the education system? I think we've touched on that a lot um, earlier. Um, what do you offer people who want to make a difference and participate in the building of a more equitable and humane world? Like kind of specifically talk about the school and the structure and that type of thing. So we offer a lot. Um, so we offer um, free lesson plans, free solutionary guidebook, both for teachers and for change makers. Um, the teacher's guidebook is called the solutionary guidebook and the activist guidebook, uh, and it's also the student version, is called How to Be a Solutionary. They're uh, free and downloadable at our website, humaneeducation.org. And then people may want to take the next step. Maybe they want to read my book, The World Becomes What We Teach, go a little deeper. Maybe they want to participate in our brand new solutionary micro-credential program, which is going to launch in April. And it's a, um, it's a three-module 30-hour micro-credential program where people learn, earn a solutionary badge. They can get continuing education unit credits if they want. Um, and that's primarily for teachers. We also have online graduate programs with Antioch University, the only graduate programs of their kind. Uh, we offer an MED, an MA, a graduate certificate, and an EDD, a doctorate in education. Um, and these are just, you know, the, what students say about these programs is 
it's the richest, most meaningful learning experience of their lives. And there's an incredible community and incredible faculty. So it's really the gamut there that we offer to people. Um, so at any level, people can, can join us. I do want to say a little bit about how this is taking root in some places. So I mentioned San Mateo County. So a couple years ago, we heard from the, um, the coordinator for environmental literacy in the San Mateo County Office of Education. Now, this is the county between San Francisco and Palo Alto, California. And um, this woman had read my book. She brought it to the team in the Office of Education. They'd read it. And they decided this was going to be the philosophy and framework for their professional development for all their teachers. Well, now they have trained hundreds of teachers to be solutionary educators. They've created solutionary units. They're teaching these solutionary units in their classrooms, K through 12, and all this incredible work is happening. So that's, that's what it takes. And we are here to help in any way we can for people who want to do that. It's also happening on the opposite side of the United States, Oceanside School District in New York. They have embraced our solutionary approach and they are integrating it into the entire K-12 social studies curriculum. Amazing. Now, you sound very passionate about all of this. Um, so I can tell this is like continues to feel really juicy, very exciting for you. Are you optimistic about the future? Most of the time, yes. Not all the time. Um, but here's the thing. I don't consider my hopefulness or optimism to be um, any kind of litmus test on whether I should do the work. Those are just my feelings. There are plenty of times where I would imagine, you know, almost everybody feels pessimistic about our ability to address climate change before, you know, we lose half of all species on earth at the end of the century, or that we're really gonna be able to create a peaceful world a world where there's no more racism and sexism and ableism and homophobia and all of those things. And yet, we still need to do the work whether or not we feel particularly optimistic in any given moment. Now, most of the time, my optimism, I feel like it's evidence-based optimism. Things have gotten better, not climate change, that's continually getting worse, but if you think about all of the ways in which things are better now, I mean, when I was born, half of the people on planet Earth were living in extreme poverty, half. And now it's under 10%. Is, is that still too high? Absolutely, but we're going in the right direction. When I was born, it was illegal in many places for people of different races to get married. You know, that is a preposterous idea to all but some crazy white supremacists at this point. Preposterous. The idea that gay and lesbian people would be able to get married, that, that we would be talking about non-binary people and the way we talk about it now, it, it, it happened in a blink of an eye when we think about the activism that started and how quickly that changed. Now, for those people working on it, it didn't seem like a blink of an eye, but you look at the arc of history and how long it took for women to get the right to vote in the United States and 
how these things have changed relatively quickly. I think we have to remember that even as we're steeped in all the bad news and the media thrives on bad news, if it bleeds, it leads, we all know that. Despite all of that, there is so much hope that we can get to this better future. And I wanna share a story um, that I think is really important. Um, not that many years ago, I was invited to speak at a school in Connecticut, it was a middle school. And I asked the fifth and sixth graders what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. And they filled up a whiteboard with problems. Now they were not learning about these problems in their classroom. They just knew about them because kids know about so much more than when I was a kid. And so after this whiteboard was filled up and, and one child even said sex trafficking, remember these were fifth and sixth graders. I asked them to raise their hands if they could imagine us solving the problems they listed. And of the 45 kids in that room, only five raised their hands that they could even imagine that we could solve these problems. That was the most distressing moment in my entire career as an educator. So I realized I had to do something very quickly. I asked them to close their eyes. I asked them to um, imagine that they were very old and approaching the end of a very long and well-lived life. And I described a different future, a future where there hadn't been a war in decades, a future where the air was clean and the water was clean and species were returning from the brink of extinction and there was no more um, prejudice or people didn't act on prejudices anymore. And after painting this picture, I asked them, their eyes were so close, I asked them to imagine a child coming up and sitting on a park bench with them. And the child has been studying history in school and has all sorts of questions and they answer the child's questions. And then the child asks this final question. What role did you play in helping to bring about this better world? So while they still had their eyes closed, I asked them to raise their hands if now they could imagine us solving the problems that they had listed on that whiteboard. And the ratio flipped, 40 hands went up in the air that they could now imagine that we could solve these problems. So what that said to me, and, and I wanna stress that these were, these were well off kids. These were not kids who were suffering from poverty and abuse by and large. We don't, I don't know the histories of all of them, but it didn't take much for them to see themselves as agents for that better future. Now, a couple of years after that, I was invited to another fifth grade classroom in Guadalajara, Mexico. I asked them to raise their hands if they thought that we could solve the problems that we had in the world. Every hand went up immediately. So what was different? Well, what was different about these classrooms was their teacher was teaching them in age appropriate ways about problems and they were actively solving them. They had set up composting system in their school. They had solar panels on their roof. They were setting up, uh, you know, replacing water bottles with, you know, water jugs that you would refill your water. So what that said to me is that, well, it really comes down to a quote that I love by Professor David Orr. Hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And Joan Baez also has a wonderful quote. Action is the antidote to despair. 
So I'm optimistic because I act. I'm hopeful because my sleeves are rolled up. And even when I'm not hopeful, I just roll up my sleeves. We have to end on this beautiful note. I just want you in the classroom. I want to be in your classroom. Um, I so look forward to learning more about, I'm going to have more information about your book and your organization uh, in the description below. Thank you so much, Zoe. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and all the ways you're rolling up your sleeves. Really appreciate it. Thanks for watching. See you at the next time. Purposeful Empathy. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free of your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from what's holding you back? At Grand Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice. You get to do so anytime and from anywhere. Visit GrandHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.